welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We gather again, and we're, we have before us the Word of God today. On a Palm Sunday, we'll be going into one of several of the Gospel accounts, the account that John gives us. I'm going to read two sections of Scripture from John 12 this morning. First, the short description he has of what's been known as the triumphal entry of Jesus, celebrated by churches worldwide today on Palm Sunday. And then a further portion in John 12 where Jesus talks about the deeper purpose behind his arrival in Jerusalem, why he was really there, and the great things he was about to accomplish. So together, let us hear the word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 27. Jesus speaking two days later to the crowds that surrounded him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is God's holy and soul-revealing word. May he show us all that he has for our lives and our walks with him. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, we're going to take today uh, to celebrate the the arrival of Christ in Jerusalem. This is uh, an event known as Palm Sunday around the world in the the churches of Christ. And uh, 
Believers have commemorated this day for many centuries. They've commemorated it for two reasons. The one, one is that it was the beginning of the final week of the greatest life ever lived. Christ was completing his life journey and his walk to Jerusalem, something that he had set his heart to do. So it, it celebrates the final week of the greatest life ever lived, but it also commemorates that by the end of that week, he would have gone to the cross. And we celebrate the fact that when Jesus entered Jerusalem that day, he was entering it to fulfill the will of God and to, to culminate, or complete rather, the greatest work in the universal history of life. He was going to that cross we celebrate him because he became our savior. And as our savior king, he began to build a kingdom. First in the hearts of men and women who would give themselves over to, themselves over to him as savior and lord. And soon a visible kingdom when he returns again. And once again, the, the greatness of who he is would resonate throughout the universe. So uh, that's why we celebrate Palm Sunday. It was the beginning of the greatest work of Jesus. But there's an irony in all of this. And if you've been around churches and you've heard teaching on uh, Palm Sunday, hopefully if you've heard it rightly, you'll know that the original audience, the Jews that were welcoming Jesus that day, didn't understand this. And they were welcoming him for the wrong reasons. Christians today celebrate Palm Sunday, as it's called, uh, for the right reasons. But the Jews who were welcoming him that day missed this. And they were welcoming him for the wrong reasons. They were not welcoming him as a savior who would one day be king, but who was going to a cross for their sins. They were welcoming somebody who they thought was a conquering king in that moment. An earthly king they called the Messiah. Now the Bible did predict a Messiah who will come at the end of time and whom the nations will honor and who will make all things right in the world and exalt Israel. But before he came as an earthly king, he would come a time before as a suffering savior. They didn't have any room for that in their thinking and teaching. And they missed that teaching in the Old Testament. And they were anxious for an earthly king who would sweep into Jerusalem, conquer their Roman enemies, and in a matter of days, set up Israel as the, the high point of all the world. That's who they were welcoming that day, an earthly king, and they were looking for an earthly victory. But they were soon disillusioned, as you know, in the gospel story. This day didn't last long, and then Jesus began to show and teach them the things that I'll teach you today about why he was really there. And they quickly became disillusioned. And by the end of that week, they joined in the same kind of gathered crowd and many of the people that said Hosanna on, on, on that first day as he came into Jerusalem would call out crucify him in the courtyard of Pilate. So things would change. So the question to ask if you're a believer and you look at Palm Sunday as we see it but they missed it is how could they miss it? As I've often said about this great event. It was a gathering of tens and tens of thousands of people who missed Jesus in plain sight. How could they miss Christ so badly? And I think the simple answer, it's really about how people miss Jesus today. They were simply looking for the wrong Jesus. 
They were looking for the wrong person. They, they had a set of purposes in their minds that they would, they, they, they would demand that God's son would satisfy. They had an agenda, if you will. They had a set of expectations. They were looking for a certain kind of Jesus who would do certain kinds of things that they wanted him to do. So they were looking for someone who would satisfy their purposes, and they were really not tuned in at all to what God was about what the father was intending to do through the life of his son. They missed what they really needed and they went after what they really wanted. And you know, that's how you can miss Jesus today. When I talk with people and I open the gospel to them and I'm as clear as I possibly can be with them and praying over the conversation so many times, when I get to the point about deciding for Christ, It's as if I've been talking into thin air and they'll come back with objections or disinterest based on the fact that I'm not talking to them about the Jesus they're interested in. They miss Jesus too. Maybe you're here today, you're exploring Christianity. The Easter season has caught your attention. You're in church for reasons that you don't even know about and you're hearing about Christ for for really one of the rare times in your life where you're watching this broadcast. Knowing Jesus Christ for who he really is, is the essence of what I want you to hear today. So I'm really going to answer the question. We're going to glance off of the day called Palm Sunday in our church history, but I'm going to spend most of my time in the discussion that Jesus had with the crowds a few days later about why he really came. And I'm really going to answer the question, Jesus, why did he come? Why did he come? I'm going to do it by going through both of the texts that I read to you. We're going to, first of all, look at the day that that Jesus entered Jerusalem very briefly. And then I'm going to, secondly, talk about the disconnect that those people experienced. And we're going to go into why that happened. Then we're going to shift down to the larger text where Jesus speaks to them about why he came And Jesus will show them he had an entirely different purpose, not wrapped around how he was going to bless their lives, but wrapped around the greatness of his death. And that's always, it always comes back to the power of the death of Jesus. And then finally, Jesus makes four deeper promises about why he had come and what his cross would do to universal history, to their lives in that day, to our lives in this day, to your life if you're seeking Christ in this hour, to your life if you're seeking to come back to Christ as to why he is indispensable to you. All of this jumps history and is as relevant today as it was to the people he speaks to in John 12. I think it's rather poignant that today is a communion Sunday. We celebrate communion Sunday on the first day of every month, as you know, and Palm Sunday is falling on that today. And at the conclusion of our message, we're going to be celebrating communion. And I hope that it will be a communion that is even more focused for you based on what you hear today. So let's simply walk through these things, two two passages, four ideas. Let's look, first of all, at the day that he did arrive. In John 12, uh, John gives a narrative beginning at verse 1 that uh, covers a span of time that began, according to verse 1, six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover would have been Saturday of the week before Jesus died. 
He spent some time at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus being the man whom he had raised from the dead some days before. The greatest miracle of his many miracles. Word had gotten around everywhere about this fantastic miracle. Jesus spent Saturday with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and his disciples. Verse 9 says that the next day, which would have been Sunday, a large crowd of Jews came from the city to see Lazarus, whom they had heard had risen from the dead. Why was the crowd so large? Well, it was Passover. And history tells us that Jews from every corner of Israel and many parts of the world would come to Jerusalem on Passover week to be there to celebrate Passover. And up to two and a half million Jews packed themselves into the city of Jerusalem in that week. So the city was filled with people and the rumors had shot through the city that Jesus had raised Lazarus four days dead. It was an astounding miracle. So the rumors were running through the city. Verse 9 tells us that large crowds came out not only to see Jesus, but maybe to, to, to touch the shoulder of Lazarus for the first time in their life to touch the shoulder of a dead man raised to see if he really could still talk, <laughs> to see what it looked like for a man four days in the grave to be standing there in perfect health. So they came. Rumors began to grow. And the chief rumor was that Jesus must be the conquering Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for. That Messiah would do miracles. Jesus had done miracles. That Messiah would, have, would provide great teaching. Jesus had provided great teaching. They began to put things together, and they believed that the Lazarus miracle was the greatest confirmation yet, that Jesus was the Messiah. What did they expect Messiah to do? To come and conquer the Romans, conquer their earthly enemies, set up his kingdom on earth, make Israel the focal point of all the nations of the world, and lead Israel into a golden age. Now, will Messiah do all these things? Oh, yes, my Bible tells me that will all happen. It's going to happen in the times of earth's future history. All of that will occur. But before he returns to this earth as a conquering king, he must first arrive, and you know this well, as a suffering savior, right? That's what the whole Old Testament teaches. But like so many of us, they were cherry picking their Bible. You ever do that? Go Bible hunting for Bible bopping for a blessing. You don't want to read through the harder texts, particularly the ones that convict. You're just looking for a little comfort capsule. You ever do that? Come on, I do it. And so they were looking for the comfort capsule of his return, but they missed the conviction point of the fact that they needed a savior first. That was a flaw in what their teachers had taught them for centuries. So the day he arrived, the crowds were gathering and the rumors were running. That leads to the second thing I want to talk about, and that was the disconnect that they had when he did come into Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 13. Jesus comes into Jerusalem the next day, so this would have actually, I hate to break some of your thinking about Palm Sunday, Many believers think that this was actually a Sunday calendar-wise when he came into the city. I and some other Bible teachers think it was actually a Monday. won't go into the details. It was actually Palm Monday, but don't let that burst your bubble. We just celebrate it on a Sunday, but it actually happened on a Monday. 
Jesus does come into the city. It was the next day. So 12-1 is Saturday. 12-9 is Sunday. 12-12 is the next day. Monday, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Why was he coming? To fulfill Bible prophecy. Multiple prophets, prophets talked about that. This primarily Zechariah the prophet saying that when the king arrives, he will come into Jerusalem. And Jesus does this because he is the king. He is the suffering king now. He'll be the conquering king then. So he comes on his own terms. He fulfills his father's prophecies. So the crowds gather both from, from, from uh, Bethany where Mary and Martha comes. They come down the road with Jesus as he's seated on the donkey. And then they come from, out, from inside the city by the tens of thousands. And they took branches of palm trees. Why? Because in Old Testament history, one of the Old Testament kings, I believe his name was Jehu, was welcomed into the city with the waving of palm fronds. And so they picked all of that up. And they streamed out of the city gate to meet him. Now look what they were saying. Crying out, Hosanna. What does that mean? It means save us. Literally, that's what it means. Now, Anybody that knows about their sin would know that they need a, a savior from their personal sin. They were, that, they were talking about save us from our oppressors. Save us from the Roman armies that are, that are stationed in this very city. Save us from our suffering. Save us from the economics that they're holding back from us. Save Israel. Set Israel free. And then they said, he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And that's who they thought they were welcoming. Messiah's finally here. It's only a matter of hours before he defeats the Romans. The king of Israel is here. Now, they, again, believed parts of the prophets, but they ignored the greatest prophet, Isaiah, who said before he comes and the government is on his shoulders, he's going to come and God the Father is going to put all your sin upon him and he's going to be a suffering savior. They ignored Psalm 22, which talked about the fact that he'd be broken on a cross and he would taste sin for them. So they were deceived. There was a disconnect. Now, Jesus actually spoke to this himself. Luke, and we studied this some months ago now, but back in Luke 19, Luke talked about the triumphal entry as it's known in church history. And as they were rejoicing over Jesus, Luke tells us how Jesus was feeling. And in Luke 19, 41, it tells us this. And when he drew near and saw the city, they were rejoicing and shouting with joy. What was Jesus doing? He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's telling them, praying over them, over the fact that they missed who he really was. They missed what that day was all about. They were looking for earthly peace and relief from the Romans, he said, if you had spiritual eyes to see, you, know, you would know that you are not at peace with God. Your keeping of the law, your good deeds will get you nowhere. You need someone to go as a suffering savior to a cross. That's where I'm going this morning. I'm heading there to make peace for you with God. Oh, if you had only known on this day the things that make for peace. So you see, Jesus confirms here that they were totally disconnected. Let's go back to John 12. Well, if this happened on a Monday, night fell. The scriptures tell us that Jesus came into the city 
dismounted from the donkey, went with his disciples into the temple, walked around for a bit, and then left, left, and left the city again, went back up to the Mount of Olives, and he stayed there overnight with his disciples. The next day dawned, and the crowds were milling around, and the rumor was going that Jesus is coming back into the city. What did they expect him to do? They expected Messiah to clean house and take charge. They expected him to walk up the steps of the Roman fortress, the fortress Antonia, and decimate the Roman legions, throw Pilate out of his ruling chair, and bring total victory to the Jews that day. Well, Jesus did clean someplace out, but it wasn't the Roman fortress. He walked instead into the, where? The temple. And he cleaned out all the corrupt religious leaders and the money changers and all the corruption that was going on made a whip with cords and cleaned hundreds and hundreds of them out by the power of his person. He cleansed his own house because he's God. Now that took everybody by surprise. Confusion started to rise. They thought, not not the temple, the fortress. Not not our, our leaders, the hated Romans. So Tuesday, wow, things went into confusion and their expectations were shattered. So the disconnect continues. Now we'll go to the third way to describe these two texts. That day it arrived and they were totally disconnected. Now I want to show you a little bit about how Jesus seeks to reconnect them by talking about the fact that he had a different purpose entirely. Now we go in chapter 12, farther down. You may see it on the screen. I'm not sure if I included it or not, but in verse 20, The narrative picks up again, and this is one or two days later. I think it's the next day, Wednesday. Wednesday dawns, Jesus comes back into the temple that he had cleansed, a lot quieter now since all that corruption is gone, and he begins to walk and teach in a place called Solomon's Portico where the largest crowds could gather if they wanted to be around him, and the crowds gathered again, wondering if now he's going to take charge, what's going on? And in verse 20, he begins to teach, and certain people arrive. Verse 20 says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, remember this is the Passover feast, remember I said Jews came from all over the world, were also people who were interested in Judaism came from all over the world. Gentiles, they're called Greeks here. People from the Greco-Roman society who were not Jewish by birth, but were interested in the God of the book, as he was called in that society. They were tired of their polytheism, tired of worshiping strange gods, tired of all of this going on around them. And they were attracted, I believe, by the spirit to consider the one true God. And so they came to Jerusalem at Passover to find out more. They were interested in hearing about this great teacher too. So they came, verse 21, to Philip, one of the disciples who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, maybe because he was fluent in Greek, because of his background. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now Philip went and didn't quite know what to do. He told Andrew, who was a more natural evangelist in the group, more people oriented, Andrew knew exactly what to do. They went to Jesus. And and, and they told him, Lord, there's some some Greeks here that want to see you. Now, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't speak right to the Greeks. He doesn't answer that directly. He uses it as a teaching point. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them and he said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, all kinds of people are around him when he does this. So Jesus is now beginning to teach 
And he talks about this hour, the last week of his life, and he begins to give us an insight into what he's really here for. They were disconnected. Now he begins to reveal a different purpose. Now, when he says, now the hour has come from the son of man to be glorified, I'm sure some of the Jews in the audience were going, yes. All right. Well, yesterday was confusing. We didn't quite know what to make of the cleansing of the temple. We thought he would go attack the Romans yesterday. But now he says he's going to be glorified. That can only mean he's going to take control. So you could hear this almost rolling nonverbal under the, under the, the radar. Yes. Until they heard the next thing. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now you can hear them say, yes, no, no, Jesus, we need to bring you aside for a little coaching. I mean, no, you're supposed to conquer. They're supposed to die. You're supposed to rule. You're our great conquering golden Messiah. What's this about your death? Jesus is identifying the fact that he will reign in the future, but he came first to suffer. Now that he's gotten their attention in our major text, which I'll finish my comments on today, verses 27 to 36, he then talks about his death. I will point out that in verse 27, he says he talks about a grain of, of wheat falling. And in verse 27, as we begin the, the text that I'll spend the rest of my time in, he says, now is my soul troubled the will of Jesus to be our Savior was a difficult road to walk, but he was committed to it. It was truly difficult, but he was also truly determined. His, he was troubled. He was stirred up emotionally, the text says. It was a difficult thing to contemplate that as God's holy son, in a few days he would be, he would be taking on your worst sins in the eyes of his father and be separated from his father. Of course that troubled him as perfect God. But he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And so we know that the essence of what he's teaching here is his purpose. Why is he there that week? Why is he heading into the next hours of his life? What is this all about? So he's gotten their attention. They're disconnected from the real truth about why he's there. They've been disconnected all the way along. And Jesus, in the teaching that unfolds, tells them that he is going to do four great things by the time that week is over and resurrection day has arrived. Now, if you focus with me, just focus with me, stay with me a few more minutes, and we'll look at these four great promises. Look at verse 28. You'll see the first one where he simply makes a great prayer statement. He shifts in prayer for a moment to his father with whom he was always in communion, wasn't he? I love the unconscious prayer life of Jesus, don't you? Father, glorify your name. So suddenly he shifts from the crowd to the Father. And he makes really what I think something we can gain the first promise from that he would achieve through his crossword. The first thing he promised through that prayer and to us years later reading it is that when he was done that week, that Palm Sunday week, if you will, he would glorify his father. The, the greatest work of his life would give the greatest glory to the father. Father, glorify thy name. And I know he was thinking ahead to the cross and the resurrection. 
predominantly his death on the cross for you. Why is the Father's glory brought into the goriness of the cross? I mean, if I were to ask you, if, you, if you're somewhat informed about Christian truth, I, I could probably even ask this of some people that aren't Christians yet. If I were to ask you, why did Christ die? What would your reflexive answer be? Not out loud, but in your mind. Well, he died to save us from our sins, which is absolutely true. But it could be argued that, it, that that isn't the greatest reason or the main reason Christ died. I believe the scripture tells us that he died first and foremost to glorify the Father. Read Ephesians 1. Read the book of Romans. The great plan of salvation was authored not simply because you needed to be saved and certainly not because you deserved to be saved, but because God in his marvelous glory decided to author a plan because it pleased him and brought glory to his name to create a plan to save lost people. And his son was at the center of it. What moment in history brings greatest glory to God? Was it creation? Will it be the great return of his son to the planet in a time yet future? Will it be when he brings all the nations and puts them at the feet of the son? Or will it be, as Corinthians tells us, when the son gives it all back to the father and he rules the the universe without the presence of sin once again? All great days. What was the greatest day? It's three days of crucifixion, resurrection. Because that's where God's glory was displayed. How is that so? Well, the cross glorified the Father. It showed the angels and the principalities and the heavenly places according to the scripture along with the whole world, the riches of the love and the grace of God like nothing else could. You see, God is glorified when we are made aware of who he is. How does God get glory? When we see who he is, when we understand who he is from the scripture, when we see who he is as he works in the human life, when we understand as the Holy Spirit reveals through the scripture more of who he is, when we see his power work, when we see history unfold according to his words, when we see his son return. But he is glorified when we see the greatness of who he is. And in the cross, you have two elements of his greatness joining justice and mercy. It displayed his infinite holiness and justice because the cross showed that God cannot simply just brush away sins without the penalty being paid. I couldn't worship a God who looked the other way over sin. Even I have a moral framework that says that that's not right. Oh no, sin had to be dealt with. His righteous wrath had to be poured out either on sinners or on a savior because the wages of sin is death eternal separation from God. That penalty would either be on you and I or on Jesus. (laughs) And through the cross, the scripture says in Romans 3 that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of that moment. God's justice poured down on the Lord Jesus so God's mercy could be poured down on you. Justice to perfect Jesus, merciful to wretched me. That's the greatest story in the universe. That's what we'll celebrate in a moment in communion. And Jesus knew that's where he was heading. And he said, Father, you know what this week is all about. You know where I'm heading. Glorify your name in every moment. 
Now the father answers back. Why? Because the father always answered every prayer Jesus ever prayed. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Wow. And the implication of the text here is those words are fully understandable. He's speaking to Jesus, but the voice was heard. How had he glorified himself in Jesus? Because Jesus was a perfect reflection of the Father. Jesus was perfect in every way, perfectly obedient, perfect in his suffering, perfect in, in every, every way. He says, son, you've glorified me. My name has been glorified in every footfall of your earthly life. And I'll glorify it again when, when justice is poured out on you on the cross and I raise you from the dead. Oh, yes, the Father rejoiced in that glory in the Son. Now, they heard it. The crowd stood there and heard it. Some said that it had thundered. <laughs> Others said, well, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. What a grace. These were blinded people thinking about an earthly kingdom, some earthly ruler, and they were missing the fact that they were lost sinners and the glory of God was slipping away from them. They were headed to hell. And once again, the majesty of God was brought out. It's the third time God spoke around Jesus, right? Remember the other two at the baptism of Jesus when he came up out of the water and God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I'm going to send him to that cross because I'm well pleased with him. He's the only perfect sacrifice for my wrath. And then at the transfiguration, when Jesus showed forth his glory on the mountain and, and, and Peter and James and John were hiding their faces, God spoke again and he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So now he speaks again. What a mercy that God speaks to blind people. God speaks to ignorant, deceived people. God speaks to willful people. He's a merciful God, isn't he? He really is. He was giving them another opportunity. He spoke to them a third time. Now, some of them were naturally deceived. Ah, oh, it was just thunder. Others said, well, it was a spiritual voice, but it was probably an angel. See, that's the way people respond when they're deceived. People, you can be naturally deceived and, be, and just not believe in God at all, even when God shows up. I've talked to scientists and doctors who've seen miraculous healings in Christians documented. I said, what do you say to that? They say, well, it just happens spontaneously. Sometimes you just see things you can't explain. I said, how about God? Oh, no, it couldn't be something like that. So you can be naturally deceived. And then there's other people that love their religions. They just, they just they have about 18 of them. And when they hear something about Jesus, they just add that to their religious set, but they never give him the honor and glory he's really due. And so they just attributed his voice to an angel, as so many people that I know just say, yeah, I, I like Jesus, but I'm also into this religion and that religion. I'm into all religions. No, he doesn't give you that option. Anyway, that's, I'm preaching on a tangent. I don't want to go there. But there was another chance for them not to be deceived, but enlightened. And I challenge you today, who, whoever you are, when you hear the gospel today, you have a chance, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, to stop your natural resistance, stop your little supernatural babbling, and come to the one and only eternal God. Promise one is that he would glorify his Father, and he certainly did. Here's the second promise. Stick with me. Verse 31. He also said that by the end of that week, the 
judgment would be on the world. He would judge the world. Not only would he glorify his father, secondly, he would judge the world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, what's that all about? And you might say, particularly today, if you're looking around at world society, you're seeing sin deepen in every culture, human hurt deepen in every culture, wickedness deepen in every society. And you might say, (laughs) you know, uh, I don't see a lot of judgment going on. I just see a lot of people continuing to do whatever they want. That's what scoffers say. It's always going to be this way. God's never going to intervene. Well, he wasn't talking about judgment that's visible. He was talking about judgment that's historic. What he, you see, he was saying that when I go to that cross and I die and I rise from the dead as the only Savior in the world, history will mark me as the Savior. History will mark me. Now is the judgment of the world. You see, I believe the death of Jesus drew a dividing line. He explained it himself. Go quickly with me. I know we're hurting for time, but stick with me. John chapter 3. We'll start at verse 16. You're saying, okay, wow. I feel better now. You've been talking a lot about sin and judgment, but let's get to my favorite Bible verse. (sighs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, that's the Jesus I'm looking for. I'm looking for the loving, affirming, never condemning, ollie ollie, income free Jesus. I knew you were misreading your Bible, old preacher. I mean, look at the next verse. It gets even better. For God did not send. By the way, this is Jesus talking about himself in John 3. This isn't John, the writer, writing about Jesus. This is Jesus speaking about himself to Nicodemus, I believe. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. I love it even more. A lot of people, by the way, take this text and teach universalism that there is no hell, there is no, there is no con- consequence for rejecting Christ. It's an ollie-ollie income-free faith. Well, all of that may stir you a bit, but then you've got to deal with verse 18. This is Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You say, see, that's what I'm talking about. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus said, when I go to that cross, die for sinners. I'm drawing a line in history that says there is a Savior now. There's only one Savior now, and what you do with him determines your eternity. If you will not trust me as your Savior, you condemn yourself. In that sense, when Jesus died and rose, judgment came to the world. Look further. And this is the, and what's the word? Judgment. Jesus said, my cross will judge the world. How is this judgment seen? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What do you need to know to truly come to Jesus? One thing is that your works are evil. That's who the true Jesus reveals. That's what rather the true Jesus reveals. And he came, that perfect, wonderful, God-glorifying person. 
If you resist, resist Jesus, you resist him because he exposes your life. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. However, on the other hand, if you're being drawn to Jesus, if you're tasting conviction of sin and you want Christ, you're in verse, verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. What's the essence of truth? Admitting you're a sinner. That's the first truthful thing you'll say in your non-Christian life. I'm a sinner. I'm a great sinner, as John Newton said, but Jesus is a great Savior. That's the gospel in one phrase. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I hope you see that there was a dividing line. You can either escape judgment or invite it. Jesus said by the end of the week, that'll be clear for all time. Third, let's go quickly now. The third promise. He also promised that he would defeat the devil. Back to our text to verse uh, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What's that all about? Who's the ruler of this world? 1 John 5, 19 says, we are the Lord's, but the whole world lies in the lap, literally the Greek, of the wicked one. Like a little captured kitten he can toy with. Satan. So the Bible identifies him. And you say, well, again, you know, uh, preacher, uh, you say the devil's defeated. Well, he seems pretty alive and well to me. Well, only for a time. And the greatest power that he had was taken at the cross. Yes, the Bible tells us he can still afflict believers, Ephesians 6. And he can still deceive the nations. Try the entire book of Revelation. But he can now no longer damn people to hell with no other recourse. Because you see, the power of death was taken from the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, please. Look at it quickly. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus came to the planet, took on a body given to him by the Father, took that body to a cross and let nails be driven through it, that through death he died all the way. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's talking there about how he defeated the devil in real time on that cross and through his resurrection. Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, your sin, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the what? The cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. How did he do it? What's the greatest weapon Satan had against men and women? Their sin, which condemned them to hell. He could wave it in their faces and wave it before the face of the Father saying, I know you hate me, O God, but you've also going to have to condemn all these people that I've deceived into sin. They only deserve hell. And God the Father says, I'm sorry, but my son walked to a cross, died on it, took my wrath, rose again. Now they have a Savior. So devil, the tool that you had to damn men and women, I've taken it out of your hand. All the lists of the sins of your life have been nailed, nailed to that cross when Jesus took the wrath of God for you, beloved. 
I love that doctrine. Jesus' death disarmed Satan of the one weapon he had that could damn people to hell. And that was the, the valid accusation of unforgiven sin. That case has been settled. That courtroom is closed for you if you trust Jesus Christ. Case settled, courtroom closed. And that's why the devil dreaded the cross, in my opinion. You may differ. He fought to keep Jesus from going to the cross, and now he rages against any teaching or believer or preacher that preaches the cross. Because that's where his defeat is all wrapped. It's one of the reasons we were given communion. With this last, I close. Back to John 12. The fourth thing he promised was that before that great week was over, he would draw lost people to their Savior. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What a verse. And I is emphatic in the Greek text. Jesus is saying, I and no other. I am going to that cross and no other ever will. And there will be no other name given under heaven by which men and women must be saved. That's what he was going to accomplish. Lifted up was the common way John used it two other times to talk about crucifixion and in verse 33 says he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die it was crystal clear he was telling them I'm not conquering the Romans this Wednesday I'm conquering your sin this Friday I'm going to do it by letting myself be lifted up on a cross outside the city for you and when I am lifted up And my death is sufficient for the wrath of God. I will draw all people to myself. Some people say, well, see, there you go. I think everybody's going to get saved. There are universalists that use verses like this to teach that heresy today. That cannot be true because farther down in the passage in verse 48, Jesus said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. It was very clear Jesus was not a universalist. He was a consequentialist. Who you believe I am and whether you see your sin and trust me as your savior will dictate your eternity. So how could he say I'll draw all people to myself? Well, the context helps us. Remember those Greeks that were on the edge of the crowd? They were Gentiles. Jesus was, I think, alluding to them, saying, I'm going to create a salvation so great that it'll reach beyond you Jews and any man or woman from any people or nation that sees their sin and trusts their Savior can be saved. The all there means all kinds of people, all nations, all languages. It's not all without exception, as in universalism. It's all without distinction. He says, my powerful cross will be sufficient for any man or woman from any place on the planet that wants it. See, Jesus died to save a diversity of people because sin is no respecter of cultures. It's in every culture. All peoples have sinned and every race and culture needs to be reconciled to God because the disease of sin is global, so the remedy had to be global. And he's introducing that here, saying in such a powerful way. That's why in Revelation 5, the Bible tells me that when we get there, we'll sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
So we go from the magnificent back down to this moment, and it goes back to you as we prepare our hearts for communion. Two questions. First question is, how did most of those people respond to Jesus? End of the passage, verse 34. The crowd answered, and we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? You're going to die? No, we were expecting you to take charge, to lead us into a golden age. Who is this Son of Man? In other words, you're not the Jesus we were looking for. And by the end of the week, he was the Jesus they would crucify. So that leads me to the second question. How should you respond to Jesus? You have the same opportunity. You're hearing the same words today. Well, he tells you, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. How do you deal with Jesus? Maybe you're hearing and seeing him today in crystal clarity and you're tasting your sin and you need a savior. Follow the light. Believe in the light. Trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And this could be your very first communion. Really could. If you trust Christ by faith today, by a simple act of prayer in your heart, seeing your sin and trusting him as your Savior, it can happen in a moment. And communion can be real to you for the first time. Or if you followed him, but it's a battle. Understand he went through the worst week in human time to bless your life. Walk through whatever you're walking through today in honor of his great sacrifice. 